Lord, thank you for your love and grace. Thank you for how you've already encouraged me today with Isaiah. And ask for your love and your favor to be made very, very real to us, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Lisa and I want to give a heartfelt thanks for all of you who prayed. Uh, as um, I had a fun stay at the Arkansas Heart Hospital, I was telling, telling Connor and Tori that uh, it was worth it to be sick like that just to get to eat their food. It was amazing. You know, you need to go over there sometime and have the food. So, oh, and I'm serious. It was incredible. The nurse laughed at me and she said, don't say that. So, but it was really, really good. Uh, we used to, we, we were friends with a guy who used to be a chef there and they would do these gourmet elaborate ramen noodle things. And, and so it's they something. Do that anymore. Those chefs left. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, I'm doing better. Uh, Basically, it was a GI bleed, and I lost quite a bit of blood. They gave me two units, Um, uh, but a lot of cardiac stress with with that. That's kind of a spinoff problem, and still have card. I'm wearing a heart monitor now. I'm going in. Here's my schedule. Uh, December 17, I'm going to go say hi to Dr. Patel at uh, Premier Gastro. We're going to shake hands, and he'll ask me, why are you here? And I'll say... Lisa's cooking, and, and go, okay, and then when can we schedule a scope, and he'll say uh, February, and I'll say, okay, see in February, so that's, that's the GI process, and then uh, January 3, I'm going to see Dr. Le to look at my heart. He's an electrophysiologist, and he'll read the monitor and see what's going on, so there is a problem with tachycardia and all that stuff, and, and we'll see, so thank you, yeah, 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 it was scary, it was a really scary thing. It really was, and I'm so grateful to bounce back and and uh, tell me if I look peaked. You know, if you think I'm looking peaked, let me know. And um, peaked it means you're you're looking. Uh, what would you say a clinical term for peaked is? Uh, weak in the gills, Galen. Did you say weak in the gills? Yeah, probably. Yeah, if you're peaked, you're weak in the gills. What do you think, Janice? What would they say in Montana? You're a little pale. Yeah. I'm what? Uh, you know, Belinda, you know, we, uh, gosh, how do you not love Belinda? We were talking and, and I, I, I said, I'm, I, I think I'm Ashen. And she said, what? And I, I said, I'm, I'm Ashen. What's that? You know, like ashy, pale kind of things. Ashen. She said, oh, I've never heard of that before. Yeah, so. Um, let me know if I'm ashen and peak it, and we'll we'll do something. Um, they having me, the, the, my daughters. By the way, Breck, Becca is um, brilliant on on diet and DoTerra and how that transforms your body. And so she has me eating Galen chlorophyll. You just like a koala bear, you just eat chlorophyll, and it's amazing, and it does wonders. So <laughs> I'm feeling better, so I guess it's working. And uh, prune juice is supposed to be good, right? It's not good. Galen's got that grin like, you are an idiot. And I'm going to let you prattle on. Anyway, we're trying. Uh, I, want, I want elk meat and bear and caribou, and you can't find that at Kroger. So, hey, David, glad to see you guys. Sir. All right, thank you for praying. All right, um, Isaiah chapter 9. Let me remind you of the scene. If you're looking at the Middle East... And here is the Mediterranean Sea. This is Israel. You go north, 
Galilee, you're going right into Syria, Damascus, and you sweep way over to the right, you're in Iraq, also known as Babylon, Ur of the Chaldeans. That's where Abraham was called out of when he met with God. Okay, so Assyria is right here, and they're big, and they're the reigning superpower, they're the global superpower, and they are sweeping to the west, they're going to drop south, and everybody knows it, nobody is stopping the superpower of Assyria, and it's bad, okay? Now, with that in mind, uh, Israel has been in a pattern of long-term, egregious, hard-hearted, full-on disobedience, okay? And the main thing that they're doing, if we could, if we could kind of categorize it in two big, big categories, we would say, number one, they're neglecting widows, they're neglecting orphans, they're neglecting the poor. Essentially, it's a problem of justice. They've lost a heart of compassion. They're not being tender and caring to those who are helpless, okay? So, quick comment about that. I, if you want to know the heart of God, you've got to understand God is all about protecting the helpless. That's a big, big deal in God's moral, ethical economy. The second thing they're doing is they're dabbling in the pagan gods of the nations around them, okay? And this is literally the, down, the spiritual downfall of Israel. Uh, do you recall when Solomon uh, took Israel to its zenith? And Israel was a superpower at that point, the global superpower, and Israeli wine production was, was a, a global uh, economy. It was amazing what was coming out of the land of milk and honey. Do you remember what happened with Solomon? What did Solomon do politically? Marriage and politics, what did he do? Yes. Yes, and with that political uh, covenant, though, Janice, what would happen with the the foreign, the pagan wives? They brought they brought the god. They brought the culture with them, all right. And so, essentially, the borders of Israel should have been secure, and now they're so completely porous that pagans are bringing in the uh, the artifacts, the icons, the idols associated with all kinds of worship. And if you go back even before that, do you remember in the, in the birth of Israel, they're coming out of G- Egypt. It's uh, really just a, a, you know, a month or so walk to go from the other side of the Red Sea to the Promised Land, but because of disobedience, 40 years for something that would be considered a very, very short trip. Uh, and they were going into the Promised Land. What did... Israel failed to do in the conquest. Do you recall? Uh, Certainly, absolutely, that's a part of it, but they actually didn't honor that command. Uh, What did they do with it? What's that? What did she say? uh, She said the commandment to not have other gods, yeah. But when Moses and when particularly Joshua went in for the conquest, didn't they not kill everyone? Well, it wasn't just kill. It was either kill, should that be a part of the ban, but dispossess and secure the borders of Israel. They didn't do it, right? And, and uh, when you read kind of the, the 
tribute language to Joshua. Joshua was a great man. He led Israel. He did this, this, this. But he didn't either bring into subjection or dispossess or conquer this enemy. And like three or four people groups were left. And the scripture even says, and they continue to have a polluting effect on Israel. It was a mess. Israel didn't clean up fully. By the way, is there a lesson in that? You know, we, we have a sin problem. We hit a crisis. We struggle. Big repentance real quick. Oh, I'm sorry. But the little problems that, that really cause some big damage, we just overlook and tolerate. You know, it's exactly what happened to Israel. And so, the, you know, it's, it's a constant um, cycle of obedience, disobedience, you know, back and forth, back and forth. Well, here we are, and, and this point, Israel and Judah, uh, they become so hard-hearted. God says, okay, I've got, to, I've, got, I've got to bring judgment on my own people. And Assyria is going to be that, that group. Okay, so Isaiah 9. And by the way, one more comment. Remember Isaiah. What's beautiful about Isaiah is this guy can say the harshest thing. God is going to come in and the rod of his fury will come down hard on the back of Israel. But then he'll come right in next to that and say, but he will always preserve a remnant and he will love them. And from that root will spring forth a nation that will honor God with sorrow. It's this beautiful language of judgment's coming. I'm telling you so, but if you'll repent, oh my gosh, God's hand is ready to, to bless you. He loves you. It's amazing language. Some of the other prophets don't do that. It's all hard, hard, hard things to hear and read, but you get the most tender language, absolutely tender, loving, Intimate language in Isaiah that you get nowhere else in the Bible. It's really beautiful. All right, so birth of the reign of the king, uh, prince of peace. But there will no more gloom. There will be no more gloom. There's a point in which the darkness flees. For who, her who is in anguish, in earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he will make it glorious by the way of the sea. Hmm, north. On the other side of the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. By the way, that's the first place Assyria will strike. North. Because they have to. They're coming from Iraq, way up west, and then they got to come down. And that's when they hit, hit Galilee. And Isaiah says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You will multiply the nation. You will increase their joy. They will rejoice in your presence as with the joy of harvest. As people rejoice when they divide the spoils. A comment there, the people will see a great light. Um, do you remember the scene in, Gal in Gethsemane when Jesus had been praying and asked his disciples to pray? And of course, they kept falling asleep with the fatigue and stress of 
all that was going on. At night, by the way, Gethsemane is a city park. It's where the homeless people would sleep, if you, if you don't know that. Uh, so that was his practice. He and the homeless guys would go sleep in the park. Um, and so that's why Jesus said, I know exactly where he is. That's where he and the guys sleep. So if you can imagine it's night and you, you can look down over the valley up and back up the hill to Jerusalem, do you think you could see troops, the police troops coming with torches? Can you see the light coming? Can you imagine being Jesus, knowing what's about to happen? The arrest, the SWAT team is coming, and they've got flashlights. You know, they're coming. You can see them. Okay. That's what happened, right? Now, can you imagine being in Galilee and seeing the incredible mass of warriors from Assyria, war elephants, all the equipment, all the gear, in this dreaded march south. And the first people to feel the lash are those in Galilee. Can you imagine the lights, torches? Can you imagine? The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Isaiah is saying, I know it's scary when the troops come. I know. But I want you to know something way, way greater than the forces of Assyria is, is really in charge. And his light, oh, you live in darkness. You watch when the true light of Yahweh comes. For you, Yahweh, Elohim, you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the marching warrior in the roar of battle and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning for fuel of the fire. I'm going to, I'm going to conquer Yahweh talking. I'm going to conquer the conqueror. I will defeat Assyria. God says, my eye is on you. I will bring light to this absolutely horrific situation. Isn't it interesting? Um, If you look at some of the ancient writings of of the Assyrians, they use language to communicate dominion and to the subjugation of another people group. And guess what some of their vernacular is? We put the yoke on the neck of blank. You know, these people. They submitted to our yoke, you know, the yoke of our authority. And that was the language of submission. And it kind of makes sense, right? They're in a farming culture, an agrarian society, where yoke and oxen and livestock and all those things are a normal part of the visual, you know, expression of farming agrarian society. And so that very metaphor... Uh, God uses to Israel and says, I'm going to break off your neck the yoke of Assyria. Okay, which is beautiful language. And of course, you remember Jesus says, hey, you tired? You're weary? You had enough? Long day? (laughs) Try it my way. Why don't you put my yoke on you? Learn from me. 
do it my way. My yoke's easy and my burden's light. So much so that little children get it. Adults miss it, but children get it. What my yoke's about. Yeah, it's a beautiful language. Um, what is this great light that's coming out of the countryside of Israel? Verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given. And a government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So when we hear, when we hear that read and, and we, we read it, we oftentimes kind of shift just a bit, maybe into a, that Christmassy red and white and beautiful green garlands and the Christmas, you know, Christmas-ish imagery, almost Hallmarkish, and we miss something. And this is what I want you to tap into. Do you see that it says the Lord of the, the Lord of Armies will accomplish this? Okay. What if these four concepts, wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. What if we took those, lifted them out of the text, and said, hey, they should be framed into not a Hallmark commercial. They should be framed into the language of military conquest. If you do, you've just unlocked it, what Isaiah 9 is about. So let's, let's give that a go. Uh, in Hebrew... A counselor of wonder, you could say. What kind of counselor? Here we are, we're psychologized Westerners. And we go, oh, well, he's a good psychotherapist. That's what it means. He's a psychotherapist. No. So if you frame this in military conquest, what's a wonderful counselor? Yes. Military advisement. Or a tactician. A tactician. Yeah. Strategy, right? Military strategy. You got to know how to fight, right? Uh, if you know anything about military and war, you understand that the most precious weapon you have against the enemy, you know what it is? Intel. Intel. If you don't know the intel, you don't know where the enemy is. You don't know how to fight him. And so can you imagine being a military advisor? a military strategist counselor of such brilliance that you have an assured victory. Wow. God's wonderful at that. God is skilled at helping us conquer the enemies in our lives. If we could pull it into our world. Isn't that amazing? He's a counsel of, of wonder there's something wonderful about his wisdom. He's mighty God. Uh, you could argue in Hebrew that uh, uh, the word mighty is to be understood as her heroic. He's heroic. He's a heroic God, you know. 
Um, it's it's uh, it's that classic scene in the movie when the enemy is oppressing and they're bearing down hard, you know, and and then all of a sudden the hero shows up and it just rallies the troops and all of a sudden the tide is turned in battle. Uh, that's the idea. A hero walks up into the scene and changes everything, you know. This is our God, mighty, heroic God, and then eternal Father. <clears throat> and let's, let's frame that in, again, in, in military political language. Uh, guess what the, the Assyrian emperors like to call themselves? Take a guess. National fathers. I'm your dad. Yeah. The idea of Joe Biden being our dad is a little scary. You know, I, I mean, I understand that. So, uh, or anybody else for that matter. Um, that's, by the way, that's actually pretty common in the ancient Near East. And um, the, not only did the emperor of Rome see himself as the national father, he saw himself as a national savior, in fact. In fact, in Greek, kurios kai soter, which means that's actually a title for the emperor of Rome, Lord and Savior. We don't think of Lord and Savior language as being political, but it, wow, supercharged political language. Yeah. Um, so. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, just like um, it was interesting. Last night, Stephen um, came home, and, and uh, the kids were there, and they just started yelling, Daddy! And, you know, and they would run, and Phoebe would plow right into his legs and you know, try to climb him, and little Evelyn grabbed him by the legs, and it's just beautiful, and he'd pick up one and tickle another, and, he, and they were giggling, and just, and I just thought, wow, it's so good to see Stephen be a good dad. You know, it's really beautiful. And the, the, the father, bigger-than-life man, you know, that's the idea that the, the Assyrian king, Tiglath Pileser, is, man, he's like, Dad, Dad's here. We're going to have food and we're going to be safe. He's going to secure our borders. And, man, our land's going to flow with milk and honey. How cool is that? Well, look at my dad. You know, he's like, he runs the whole place. That's the language. And uh, very common in the ancient Near East, not just unique with the Assyrians, but. So Isaiah is calling to Israel saying, look, the real father is an eternal father, not a temporary king. You know, like Biden or not, he's out of here. He can't, you know, bless his heart. He's getting so old. Who's next? We don't know. Trump, who knows what's going to happen? Marco Rubio, I don't know. I have no idea who the next president's going to be. And guess what? even if it's the man that I would want or the woman that I would want. They're not God. They're going to make a lousy savior. <laughs> They'll never be a wonderful counselor. They'll never be a heroic God. They'll never be an eternal father. And they're certainly not going to bring peace. They're not going to be the prince of peace. So these four titles, functional titles and couplets, Wonderful counselor or counselor of wonder, mighty God, you know, everlasting father, these couplets. 
We're not talking about a Hallmark movie. We're talking about someone coming with such authority that with, with, with power that can silence the greatest global force on earth. Like Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai, the God who created the heavens and the earth. And so if you're Israel and you're under Assyrian oppression and that hits your ears, would that give you hope? Would it? You would think, right? There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David over his kingdom. Um, when you read the Old Testament, it's really, it's really sad, the political cycles. And this nation rise, rises to power and beats up all the neighbors, and then they get conquered. And then this guy, the neighbor that was once beat up, becomes powerful and beats up all their neighbors and tries to conquer and all this and displaces people. And then that collapses, and this one, and it's like you've got these kings and authorities and nations that keep the rise and fall and the ebb and flow of the political geopolitical world in the Mediterranean. I mean, it's, it's a hot mess over there anyway, right? It's such an unstable region of the world. And this language of there will be no end to his increasing government. Wow, talking about stability? Wow. That's something they would not, they would not overlook. And he's going to uphold justice and righteousness. By the way, getting at some of the root problems of Israel, the inability to treat people with justice and corruption in the courts and bribes and corrupt priests, that this kingdom will be a kingdom of justice and righteousness from then on and forever. It's an eternal kingdom. And... The Lord of armies will accomplish this. It's beautiful. All right, now, let's dig in just a little bit. Um, God's anger with Israel's arrogance. Even, here we go, Isaiah is speaking some of those beautiful language, you know, that we're drawn. How, do you, how can you not be drawn to Isaiah 9? And then he shifts and says, hey, look, the Lord sends a message against Jacob and it falls on Israel and all the people know it. That is, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria inserting, asserting in pride and an arrogance of heart. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with our smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore, the Lord arises, superior adversaries against them from Rezin and provokes their enemies, the Arameans and the Philistines, and you, you see the list. I want you to focus on verse 13, 9, 13. Yet the people, this is heavy, you guys ready? This is serious theology, we're going to struggle with it. Yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them, nor do they seek the Lord of armies. That's a tough one, okay? That's unusual language. The people do not turn back to him, God, who struck them. That's unusual language. What do you make of that? Let's open it up. What do you make of that? Exactly. Exactly. 
uh, Lisa has, has been just, to me, the epitome of a wonderful mother. In the times that I've seen her disciplined kids, um, she would always held them close. They, they were near. Their arms were not ropes, <laughs> if you know what I mean by that, and jerking them about by the arm. And they would sit on her lap and sometimes cry. And then they would lay their head here and she would just console them, you know. And she would say things, do you understand why that was wrong? Yes, I do, I'm so sorry, you know. Beautiful tender moment, seeing Lisa just at her best in disciplining Rebecca and, and Andrea and Catherine. So, um, what if when you read verse nine, verse thirteen? What if David? What if you superimpose that onto the verse, and you realize the reason why God is bringing in Assyria is it's spanking with a wooden spoon. It's discipline. God's not up there, you know, delighting in cruelty at all. What if that's got nothing to do with it? What if there's something more, more precious going on? In fact, if you look at chapter 10, uh, the superscription in the NAS is that Assyria is God's instrument. Okay, I'm not sure what, if you have a superscription, Isaiah 10.1. But the whole point is God raises up a nation to chasten Israel. Okay, so that Israel will come running back home. Does it make sense? Uh, Paul, speaks, uh, Paul speaks of this to the church at Galatia, that a son or a daughter is under tutors until the time appointed by the father. And in, in Greco-Roman culture, it was the obligation of the father to assure the child was educated. And the child, uh, oftentimes the dad would hire a pedagogue, a pedagogue to teach the child and make sure the child got to school, honored the teacher while at school, got home, and did their homework. That was the job of the pedagogue. And guess what he had in his hand? A switch or a rod. And he was authorized by dad to, to smack the legs, the backside of the kid, to make sure that they honored their teachers and, and did their homework. Now, of course, it sounds very harsh for us today, and I understand all that. But the point is, Paul said the law of Moses is like a pedagogue swatting us on the behind to chase us to Jesus. Okay? And the whole point is that God is using Assyria or Babylon or Egypt or whatever the nation may be to swat Israel on the backside to chase her back to the one holding the rod to the Lord. Okay? So I want you to I want you to know that heart. Um Verse 18, for wickedness burns like a fire and it consumes briars and thorns. It also sets the thickets of the forest aflame and they roll upward in a column of smoke. James borrows this language. What about our tongue and our words? You know that, don't you, Sue? Boy, things that we say can burn and destroy words of destruction coming out of our mouths 
Uh, that's the stuff of rebellion. That's the stu- we don't have God's heart when the things we say destroy other people. Um, verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1, woe to those who enact unjust statutes. Okay, we've got a justice problem. And to those who constantly record harmful decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor among my people of their rights so that widows may be their spoil and they may plunder what belongs to orphans. That kind of behavior, abuse of the helpless, angers God. It really does. Angers God, yeah. Uh, There's something profound here. Drop down to verse 10 of chapter 10. As my hand has reached to the kingdom of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do the same to Jerusalem and her images, just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? God knows. God knows what's going on in the tents of Israel in the temples and the high places and the trees and the little, the little places where you can give tribute to local pagan gods. God knows. God knows these things. And uh, final comment, and, and I want to turn it over to you. Uh, chapter 10, verse 15. Uh, this is a very common metaphor that Jeremiah and Isaiah use. And the, meta- the idea is, can an object talk to the... Can, a, can a, a wooden object talk to the human? Can a, a piece of clay talk to the potter? Can the tool or the axe talk to the woodsman, right? So that's a common theme that, that Isaiah and Jeremiah uses. So look at verse 15. Is the axe to boast itself against the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be a club welding those who lift it or like a rod lifting the one who is not wood, uh, or what we, we might say today, does the tail wag the dog? Same kind of idea. It's an issue of authority. In other words, who's telling God what to do is what this means, right? Does the potter have a right over the clay to shape it and mold it into the vessel of his choice? Yes. Does the clay have a right to say, hey, hey, what, hey what, stop, what are you doing up there? Get your hands off of me. Who do you think you are? I don't want to be shaped that way. You know, you say, well, that's silly. Clay doesn't talk. And clay would never do that to the potter. And yet Israel does that to God. You know? The axe saying to the woodman, stop. I don't want you to use me to chop a tree down. So, All right. And all of that, of course, is uh, indicative of pride and rebellion. So, all right. I want to turn it over to you guys. Chapter 9. Wow, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. A child will be born to us. God chastens because he wants us to chase us back to him. You're the church. How do we pull Isaiah 9 and 10 out of its context? You know, well over two and a half, you know, almost 3,000 years ago into our world today 
so that we do not make the same mistakes that Israel made. You are now the wonderful counselors. Advise yourselves on how to live this out. Chris, that is one, one thing I thought was interesting. Because every, every, I would like to read and compare it to other translations on what they would say. Okay. And one of the things is they would have the Lord of Hosts and some, the Lord of Armies and others. Yeah. And so I did a little, just a small brief study on that. And it's neat because there's a, a good bullet po- uh, point in there. It says, Hosts, military forces consisting of God's angels, sometimes including the sun, moon, and stars, and occasionally Israel. And what I thought was pretty cool about that is Isaiah kept saying that because they had a, like you said, a problem with idolatry where he was kept telling them, he's like, look, God's got all that under control. There, there is a little other God going around taking it. He's the one controlling all that. Why are you still going back to these other things? Yes, yes. When, yeah. when he's the one that controls all of that. Yeah, which ironically, David includes the worshiping of the moon. Right. And of course, you know Egypt. They worship the sun god, right? Yeah, that's uh, so. Anybody else on on how this applies to us today? Questions, comments. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. It almost reminds me uh, quite a bit of the language of Revelation. God and his heavenly armies will give final conquest and vanquish all evil. Yeah. Absolutely so. Anyone else? Isaiah 9, Isaiah 10. Uh-huh. Do you know if the cross was born after the Assyrians invaded? Yes, he was. Yeah, so this is around 700, you know, 50 BC. And so he, he was born. It's a little hard to date the precise birth of Jesus, it could be as early as 4 BC because of a calendar error. Uh, we almost think it's right at zero, you know, between B.C. A.D., but it may be 4 B.C., you know, 3 B.C. So, yeah, yep, 700-plus years that prophecy stood about Jesus. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, anybody else? Okay. Oh, yeah. And it was just such contrast. And one of the names was, it was in a sermon we were listening to, we were later trying to find where it was in Revelation, but it was um, the name Maleficent. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, 
things. Yeah. Yeah. And Disney has turned like that into a magnet. Sure. Soften it, yeah. So the word Apollyon is a really significant Greek word. It's a god of destruction. It's destruction, it's war. It's bad. Yep. Really bad. So. I have a question. Uh huh. So um, the way I understand the text is that God is judging the, the leadership of Israel. Okay. Yep. Yep. Harshly. Very, very harshly. Yeah. You know. uh, Janice, to speak plainly and to the point, in all these things, someone's got to be responsible. <laughs> right? In Israel, somebody's got to man up. Well, who are they supposed to be? The priests. Yeah. The advisors, the counselors, you know, because every city had their counselors at the city gate and every nation had national advisors. That's not a big deal. They all had that. They all had wonderful counselors. Ah, Janice, to the point, when those in responsibility and leadership fail, it's bad. It's really bad. Yeah. And what it does to the nation. Do you think that applies to households? Sure. Sure it does. When, when fathers and husbands fail, the beginning point and the end point of leadership, the head and the tail of leadership, the beginning and end, yeah. Husbands fail, fathers fail, mothers fail. The same stuff applies to moms. When those in responsibility fail to be responsible with God, it's bad. And that's why many pastors, many priests will be judged very harshly. Very harshly. False teachers, hypocritical false lives, duplicitous lives. Yeah, judgment's coming. And I'm not, and I'm not uh, exempt. I will be judged harshly. James three one. Let not many of you be teachers, because those who are in a position to teach, they're judged what? With a stricter judgment. Yeah, I'm not exempt from that. I didn't clap out of that. Yeah, it's serious. So, time to spiritually man up, huh? Yeah, thank you, Janice. And the light that came, literally Jesus coming from Galilee, the light that comes out of that area the poor the poor 
rural areas of northern Israel is where Jesus based his operations. Capernaum, the city right, the village right next to the Sea of Galilee. You know, Peter's mom lived there and all the fishing and all that happened in the Sea of Galilee. and The bulk of his work was there, his teaching. Can you imagine feeding 5,000 men plus kids plus wives and moms and all that? It's all there, you know? And he took bread and he broke it, and he said, you give the bread to the to the crowds. And they sat down in groups of 50s and kind of got organized and happened several times you know? and that very Eucharistic language remember the word Eucharist is Greek and and whenever you hear the word you in a Greek word what does you mean EU what does it mean it means good and what is charis grace joy it's also joy and you put you charis together you're talking about Good grace, good joy, also translated thanksgiving, giving thanks, Eucharist, Eucharist. And so Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. When he Eucharist, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, I, love, I love the treatment of, uh, in Luke's gospel where uh, Luke says that he's with the disciples and he, it's like they're in a hurry and they, okay, we're going to finally sit down. And he goes, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. I've wanted this, you know. And then regarding the wine, because in a typical Jewish Passover, there's at least four cups of wine that are used throughout the Passover meal. It's all diluted, sometimes a one to two to one to three ratio. And, and he, wanted, he, he wanted to drink wine with them. He did. But then he says, after this, I'm not going to drink it anymore until the kingdom. Wow. He's talking. This is, this is when he will reign. It gets real. Heaven collapses in on earth and he will reign and there will be no end to his government. And it's going to be beautiful. And we'll sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb and there'll be lots of wine and lots of bread and lots of wonderful things and singing. And it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be absolutely beautiful. And he knows that and he can't wait for that day. And so he gave us this little gesture, a little bit of bread, a little bit of juice, a reminder of the spilt blood and broken body of Jesus that he is the one whom Isaiah will describe like no one else does as the suffering servant of Isaiah 55. Excuse me, Isaiah 53. As the lamb led to the slaughter and he died on our behalf. 
we like sheep have gone astray. But the wrath of God fell on him and not on us. So it's beautiful. That is the gospel. And if we do not believe the gospel, we will not know the new birth and we will not know his, his kingdom. Let me pray and we'll, we'll take the, the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you so much for everyone that's here and all your grace in the way you show kindness. Would you please bless right now in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.